to the book of Matthew as we turn to the Word of God. Book of Matthew, verses chapter 27, verses 35 through 47 will be our scripture reading today. Matthew is writing as an author, as a Jew, who writes about Jesus, who is also a Jew, to his audience of Jews, about the crucifixion of Christ. As he writes here in Matthew 27, Matthew 27, and our text will be from verses 35 to 47. Matthew here writes, verse 35 of chapter 27. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. This morning we are blessed to have a guest with us this weekend. Many of you already know and have already met him and his wife. Brian Edwards and his wife Debbie are here with their two-year-old son, Elias. And uh, they are here as candidates for a ministry position, Brian is here uh, candidating for the position as uh, on staff of student ministries, working with uh, our youth in particular. He is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, and he is also a graduate of Columbia University, where he received his Master of Divinity. And he has served as a youth pastor for a number of years, as well as uh, with. Uh, in a juvenile detention center, and also uh, having planted a church in the Midwest in New Hampshire. And so he comes with uh, a background of some experience, and he is uh, blessed to have been here. It's been wonderful to fellowship with him and to get to know him. And I'm sure a number of you have been blessed already, having met him and having a chance to be encouraged by him. And this morning he is going to bring our message, and want to encourage you to extend to him a warm welcome as he comes forward. All right.
right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this is probably one of the most hospitable churches I've ever been in. Can I just tell you that right now? And I've been in a lot of churches growing up. I was raised in the church, and uh, I was brought up in the church. But out of all the churches I've been in, I've never eaten so well. <laughs> this is a church that knows how to eat, and I think that's a very biblical model for a church ministry. And so I've been blessed very much by each of you. And uh, even before we came here, Debbie and I would, would get emails from people like Tom Marr and from Jerry and from Pastor Joe and from Will, and from John Boucher, and we immediately started to connect with their hearts before we even met any of these people. And Debbie and I would look at each other and say, it's kind of eerie, but we kind of are starting to like these people <laughs> before we even know them. And it's just God's given us a love in our hearts for each of you, and we've been praying uh, for you as a leadership and for you as a church. And so it's so nice to see all of you. Uh, Pastor Joe gave me a picture where you were at a family camp. And so I blew it up as, as you know, big as the pixels would allow me until you were all blurry and there's blotches just to see each one of you. And so I've seen each one of you that were in that picture and blew it up close. And we said, I wonder what it would be like to, to meet each one of you. And so it's so, been so nice now to actually see you and to meet you. And uh, we've enjoyed ourselves very much. Uh, I'm going to be uh, preaching to you from a passage called Ma- uh, Matthew 27. And it was read to you right now. And I want to focus in on one verse that I'm going to be talking about. But before I do that, I'd like to pray and just dedicate this time to the Lord. Dear Lord, I thank you for each person that's here. And Lord, I thank you for bringing me um, literally thousands of miles over from South Carolina uh, to Seattle. And Lord, I pray that this would just be your ministry. Uh, of word to these people, Lord, that you would touch my life and you touch each person's life here, that you would just con- uh, empty myself of uh, all of my ambition, my thoughts, and my goal and desires. And Lord, I pray you'd have your way. You'd speak your truth through your word to each person here. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The verse is read. I'm going to read it again in verse 46. It says, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, Pastor Joe had mentioned that I was uh, planting a church in New Hampshire. And I I was able to, God gave me the gracious uh, ability to, to be there and to plant a church. And we saw great fruit in this very cold, hard rock state of New Hampshire. Here there's lots of trees and you dig down and you actually find soil. Uh, in New Hampshire, you dig down one inch and you find granite. It's called the Granite State for a reason. It's just rock everywhere. If you've been there, you can test me on that. There's no gold digging uh, going on in New Hampshire. It's all just completely rock. And very similar, the people there have become that way as well. I've met many men tattoo laden who are very um, bitter about life and pessimistic about the future. And I would talk with them. And most times when I talked with these men, they would tell me one thing that that was true for all of them. Many times their fathers had forsaken them. And the reason that they'd gotten so bitter was because they had a dad or a mom who abandoned them. A family breakdown in upper New England is just incredible. It's very rare to find a man and a wife staying together in marriage in that area. And the result of that is that the Family breakdown has caused people to become very bitter and, in a sense, very forsaken. I think it's a problem not just in New Hampshire, but it's a problem in the rest of America as well. And when you look at this passage, I believe, I want to make a statement here, that it was the Lord, it was the Father's will to forsake His Son. You have to test me on that. We'll look in the sermon and see if that's true. 
But I believe it was the Father's will from the very beginning to forsake His Son. The forsaking of the Father was by His design. Jesus was brought to this very hour of abandonment. And I want you this morning to imagine how Jesus felt being abandoned, being forsaken. The pain, the intensity of being left by a father must have been worse than any feeling he could have had. And one memory I had of this that's, that brings things very close to me was when I was in a, a Kansas City. My wife and I were living in an apartment in Kansas City. And uh, we came home and we saw the answering machine light blinking. We went over and we pushed play and I will never forget the message that I heard on that answering machine. And it brings tears to my eyes even when I think about it today. Because it was of a boy who was six years old. And he was saying this. He said, Dad, Dad, when are you coming home? Dad, Dad. And he called my answering machine by accident. We knew the family. The father had left home for another woman. And this boy, six years old, all he wanted to know was, when are you coming home to me, Dad? I feel so lost without you. And I just want you to know, I want you to come home, Dad. And I keep hearing that little voice in my head sometimes. And I believe it's the voice of humanity. It's the voice of so many people in America. They're crying out saying, I feel abandoned. I feel forsaken. And I want to tell you today, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. Jesus knows exactly what it means to feel abandoned. And to feel left alone. And I want to share that with you. This six-year-old boy, all he wanted to know, my answer machine, was when? When are you going to come home, Dad? When are you going to be here? You've been gone for two weeks or three weeks. Maybe it was for a month. But but when are you coming back, Dad? All he can understand at six years old is that um, when. Just a week ago, I was leaving my home in my... We live in South Carolina. We live in a, it's kind of a retirement area. A lot of people go to South Carolina and to Aiken to retire. And so I'm down here and I was leaving to go uh, with my wife. Actually, I was just leaving myself. My wife was back with the kids and I was leaving to run some errands. And my little son, some of you have met him, Elias, he runs out with just a diaper on. He just, he's fast. So he got out the door and my wife was chasing after him. And he's standing there and he's going, bye bye, bye bye. He goes, Dad, Dad, bye-bye. And, I, and I, I stopped my car and I looked at Elias and I said, bye-bye, I'm going to be right back. I'll be right back. And he's like, he understood. He goes, okay, all right. And then he felt like everything was okay with the world. And so he walked back into his house, you know, Dad's coming home. All he could understand and all this six-year-old understood was, I want Dad back. When are you coming home? Now, as that six-year-old boy grows up to be an adult, he'll be asking the question, Why? Just like Jesus did. He was saying, why, Father, Dad, did you betray me when I was six years old? Why did you leave our home? Why did you leave me? And most time in divorce family studies, have, I've read a lot of things about it. This is the number one thing that a, a child of divorce says, even into adulthood. They say this, what did I do wrong? Could I have been a better child, son or daughter, to have kept my dad home or to have kept my mom home? And they blame themselves. Now, it's not that child's fault, but they feel that way. They sense it's my fault. Jesus here, he's asking God the same question. Why, Father, have you forsaken me? Now, here's the issue. Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. The scriptures say he was perfect. 
There was no sin. He had not sinned. He hadn't done anything wrong. Why was the Father at this time turning His back on the Son? Why was He? Because the Trinity says they're one, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're unity. Unbroken. But for a moment on the cross, John 10.30 could not have been true for Jesus He says, I and the Father are one. He still was part of the Trinity. And this is what I don't understand. I was talking to the pastor about this. And some things we just don't understand. And this is one of them. How could the the Trinity be divided for a moment? And it was for one moment because in that moment, Jesus was taking on the sin of the world. In that moment, He was taking on each one of you and myself, our sin. He was taking it on Himself. And and God's presence cannot be in the the presence of sin. And so he had to distance himself. So much that in verse 46 it says that he cried out in a loud voice. I think it's important that the emphasis is there uh, on not just simply crying out, but it was loudly crying out. Have you ever heard a child cry out for their mother when they wanted something? Most times they don't do this. Oh, pardon me, mother. When you get a moment. I, I wonder if you could come over here. I need a bottle. It's been about an hour. You know, you don't see that. When a baby needs something, they're just like, wah, wah, right now, I want it right now. He cried out in a loud voice because they wanted something. I think the reason Jesus cried out so loudly was because of how close his relationship was to the Father. He knew such intimacy with the Father that really is beyond our comprehension. And it just tore him apart to now have that severed. That it, that it had to create a loud outflowing. And I don't think Jesus was a yeller or a screamer. It just came out from within him because he felt so distanced from his father. Now, it's interesting when you read the text, it said that there was three things that happened to him. Physical, emotional, and relational pain. The physical pain was obviously being crucified. When you look at the crucifixion, crucifixion was a cruel torment. Um, the Romans uh, did to stop uh, thieves, robbers, murderers. And to, to try to make an uh, example of these people, they crucify them. But Jesus doesn't cry out, stop the pain. He doesn't cry out in a loud voice, stop, these nails are killing me. I, this is hurting. And I'm going to just, I may never see you again, okay? So can I just tell you a secret? You may never see me again. Sometimes it's nice if you meet strangers in the airport, you can tell them your life story because you're never going to see them again. You ever done that? I, I sometimes witness that. People will tell me their life story. And I don't know why, but they'll just open up and just bubble it out. You know, yeah, this and this and this. I'm just going to tell you something that I have not told anybody back at home other than my family. Because so, that's how much I'm trusting you. All right? So don't tell anybody else. All right? Do you see on my hand a mark? Anybody see it? Raise your hand if you see a hand, mark on my hand. Some of you can see it. It looks a little bit discolored right there, right? Here's how it happened. Now, this is a little embarrassing, so bear with me. There's two sausage patties that were frozen together. (laughs) And I, being a fast-moving man, wanted them separated. So I was hurrying in the morning to go somewhere, and I was holding the sausage patties like this, together, frozen. And I had a knife about this long, on the other hand, because men like big knives. And I took my hand with this and I said, I'm going to separate these and start, you know, I just kind of whittled away. That, and I thought they were frozen a little bit more than they were. So I went in about a half inch into my, through the sausage patties and into my hand. And immediately hit the floor because it went through and hit the bone on the other side. And I don't know if you've hit the bone with a knife through your hand. I wouldn't recommend it. It hurts pretty bad. And so I went straight to my knees uh, and I was in pain. 
And I was sitting in the hospital or the medical clinic later on, and that medical clinic became my monastery. Here I am sitting there with my hand open and uh, ready, to get, ready to get stitches and a very tender part of your body. And I'm not looking forward to it. I said, do we need stitches? <laughs> um, I'm trying to sound strong. We could just do a Band-Aid. I could do a Band-Aid. No, then the doctor put her hand on my shoulder and she was about five foot tall and she said, it's okay. Um, <laughs> you're just going to have to have stitches. And so I'd never had stitches before. And so she came in there and, ah, I mean, it was painful. I don't want to go into details, but it was pretty painful. And the shot hurt worse than the stitches. It just went right in there and just was bad. And in that moment... I looked at it and said, Jesus, you did this for me. Imagine the pain, the suffering that he went through to have his hands. And probably it was down here, but typically we look in the pictures and it was right here. The, the, the spikes went right through into his hand. And he doesn't cry out in a loud voice, stop that pain. I'm telling you what, I would have cried out in a loud voice, stop this pain. It was so hurtful. But Jesus didn't cry out, stop the pain physically. Number two, he didn't cry out and say, stop the emotional pain. It says, and you just read it, Pastor Joe was reading, that they ridiculed him. How many of you in here love to be shamed? Raise your hand. It's great to be shamed. You look forward to being shamed. No one in here wants to be shamed. I don't want to be shamed. I just shared with you a shameful thing that no one else knows. Jesus loves me so I can do that for you. I can can humble myself because I know he's still going to love me, you know, even if I never see you again. You know what? Jesus didn't cry out, stop the insults, stop spitting at me. He didn't cry out in a loud voice. Thirdly, what he did cry out, what my God, in personal terms, three personal terms, look at it. My God, personal term, my God, personal term, why have you forsaken me? Third personal term. This is a personal thing for, for Jesus. You have turned your back on me. You have abandoned me. He could go through the crucifixion, he could go through the slander of men, but he could not go forward without his Father's presence and approval, without his Father's love. Imagine how painful it was for Jesus that he couldn't help but cry out. And I believe Jesus faced despair there. I believe he faced emotions that we face. He says that he was a man just like us, and he went through everything that we've gone through. He wasn't just a a statue person. He felt things. And I believe he felt the same things that we feel. And he felt such a aloneness at that point, at that time. Even though Jesus was not a child of divorce, I believe it would have felt like a divorce times 1,000, times a million. Children of divorce, there's something that, that hurts in their heart. Imagine what Jesus felt like being divorced for a moment from his father. Being separated for a moment for his father. Listen to these verses. This is how close the father and the son were. John 10:30. He says this, I and the Father are one. That means two things. Doctrinally, He's God. And also relationally, there's no separating the two. We are so close. It's like, you ever seen a father and a son where they're walking along together? I watched this truck driver and he was looking underneath his truck and his little boy, about four years old, was standing there doing this. He didn't, have to, he didn't have to get into the floor, but he just looked like this with his dad. And it was such a beautiful picture to me of a father and a son. Here this, dad want, this boy wanted to be just like his dad. And this closeness between the Father and the Son, between Jesus, it says we are one in John 10.30. John 5, verse 30, it says, Jesus said this, By myself, I can do nothing. John 5.30. What does that mean? He's absolutely dependent. Now, what do we value in America? In dependence. We value it as Americans. As Americans, we say the best thing is a person who can do things without anybody's help. In New England, they value that very much. Maybe they value that here too. Doing it on your own, 
I did this on my own. I didn't need any help. I did it by myself. Jesus would never make that statement. He was absolutely dependent on his father. So much so, he's ever seen those little Muppet, little puppets like this? And they're talking, ventriloquist is talking for a puppet. You ever seen that? And they're like this. Oh, how are you doing? You know, and they just talk like that. Jesus was such that nothing came out of his mouth unless the father gave it to him. Everything he spoke out of his mouth came directly from his father. He was that dependent. And then John 8.28 says this. I can do nothing on my own. I only speak what my Father has taught me. John 8, 28. So I want you to focus on this morning the relational trauma. Not the doctrinalness of this, but the relational trauma that Jesus underwent as He was on the cross, separated from His Father. Now I was reading about different studies that happen with children of divorce. Trying to understand Jesus' situation, I want to look at what people go through when they go through divorce. And I could ask you right now, if you know somebody who's gone through divorce, and I bet you everybody's hand could be raised. You know, somebody in here who's gone through divorce. Maybe even in this room, you've gone through that. You've experienced that. And it's a very terrible thing. But studies of college students suggest that recent parental divorce may result in extreme anxiety, depression, Anger and loneliness. Those experiencing divorce are much more likely than other students to seek help for problems related to alcohol, drugs, eating, sleeping, academics, and financial stress. This is what I believe. I believe that disruption in the family is the worst social evil in America. I believe it's worse than murder. It's worse than abortion. It's worse than any kind of thieving, robbing. The disruption of a family... A divorce in a family, I believe, is the biggest social evil that we're experiencing today in America. Look at 100 years ago in America. You never would experience divorce like today. It would have been unheard of. And it would have been something nobody would have done. And I'm not slamming on people who have been divorced. I know that some things happen in people's lives. I'm not putting people down. I'm just relating it to the pain that's there. I'm not saying you're a bad person right now if you know somebody or if you've gone through that. So please don't take it that way. But imagine, when a disruption happens into a family, here's an example. Let's say that a father never really communicated love to his daughter. Let's say he was gone a lot, and so because of that, he never really saw his daughter. When he saw his daughter, all he focused on was what she was doing wrong. And so all she felt was complete rejection from her dad. That would make that girl vulnerable to some guy without scruples who would take advantage of her by saying, oh, I love you. And she would give herself away because she didn't have the strength of a father's love. I've seen that happen over and over again when I've worked with youth ministry with kids. Girls who've not had a father that's loved them are much more vulnerable. And so then what happens as a result of that? Unwanted pregnancy. With unwanted pregnancy and no Christ in your life, many times the result is abortion. Now use that same example with drugs, alcohol, and tendencies towards violence. When I worked with gang members, the pastor said I worked in a juvenile detention center. It was in the Cook County uh, in Chicago where I worked with these gang members. I'd walk in there, 95% of these young men did not have a father at home. So because they didn't have a father at home, they joined the gang. It was their family. They protected them. They watched out for them in kind of a family kind of way. Because they didn't have a father. And I can tell you a lot more stories about that, but I get off the track of what I'm trying to say. But God does miracles with those kind of people too. He saves them. He teaches them things. It's so neat to see. A classic example though for you guys here in this neck of the woods is Kurt Cobain. Anybody know who Kurt Cobain is? Some of you know Kurt Cobain. Some of you may not. But he was a uh, lead singer for a group called Nirvana. 
And for better or worse, that put Seattle on the musical map, okay? Kurt Cobain. I mean, everybody heard about Seattle. I mean, I was in Iowa and I heard of Seattle. Because, you know, Kurt Cobain was so popular everywhere. You know, his music, the young people loved it. And I listened to some of it as I was a youth pastor and I was going, what are they getting out of this? I mean, it's just like hopelessness, despair, I'm angry, there's no point, let's just drop out. That's his message, you know, over and over again, and different themes and different, you know, music. That's what his message was. He was from Aberdeen, Washington, a uh, lumbering area. And uh, not a lot of people know what his family was, but some of you know what happened to him. In 1994, he committed suicide. He couldn't control a lot of the problems in his life. He was facing battles in his life, dealing with drugs and other problems. And so in 1994, he saw no way out but to shoot himself in the mouth with a shotgun. And he ended his life. He was 27. He gave it up at 27. Saw no point in life at 27. Just when you, if some of you are 20 and under, 27 under, you're looking forward to what you're going to do in life. He'd said, I'd reached the pinnacle. There's no point living. I'm going to die. I want you to listen to an obituary written in the New York Times about this writer. His name is Lorraine Alley, and he's talking about Kurt Cobain. Here's what he says. Kurt Cobain was one among a league of kids raised by 60s parents who shuffled their children from relative to relative in a quest for personal fulfillment. Then he lists other people like Courtney Love and uh, Bill Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins and Trent Reiser from Nine Inch Nails. And he says, all of these people suffered the fallout of free love. And as adults, they sell millions of albums to peers who can relate to their rootless anger and dysfunction. Millions of teenagers are buying this music and other music like it. It's communicating to them exactly what they feel. Now as a church, that should cause us to wake up and to think, what is our society in America going through? I think one of the greatest mission fields in in the world today is becoming increasingly America. It's becoming America. And I think if we don't do something to change that, we aren't going to continue to send missionaries from this country anymore. Koreans, I've talked to a lot of friends with Koreans, they're sending missionaries to America now. Because we have such a dysfunction in our families and such a hopelessness in America that they're saying, you need the gospel. You need Jesus. It's a parent's commitment, love, and acceptance that brings stability into a person's life. And I've looked at your families here, and I love them. I wish that some of you could have been my dad. You know, you guys are great families in this church. That's a strength that you have that not a lot of churches do have. It's beautiful to see that. And so I'm not saying that for you. But I'm saying this is what we need to take into consideration for those around us. You know what I'm so excited about when I think about this church? And I don't know you that well, but just from what I've seen, you guys are such poised to make such an impact on your community because of the strength of your families here. You have such a strength here of community and of love that the world desperately is desiring. And they're crying out for it in their music, in their songs. And they're wanting to know, does anybody care? Out of stability, you can reach out. That's why I think enemy, the enemy is working in families to destroy them. Because then you can't reach out to anybody. If your own family is messed up, you have no desire to reach out to your neighbor. Because your own hurt is too great. But if your own family is strong, then you have a desire to reach out. You have a desire to bring them in and to, and to help them and encourage them. But back to Jesus on the cross. He's crying out and he's saying, Father, my Father, my Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why did he forsake him? 
Every good Jewish boy should ask this question. If he goes through a hardship and a hard time in here, I don't know how many of you are Jewish in here, but I'm obviously not Jewish. But a lot of people in this area are Jewish, so some of you may. I don't know. I'm not trying to say that. But a good Jewish person would ask this. Why are you forsaking me as a Jew? Because Deuteronomy 4.31 says this. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by an oath. Every good Jewish boy, when he goes through a hard time, should ask. And Jesus was a good Jewish boy. Okay? He was a good Jew. He's perfect in every single way. So he's probably on the cross saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Can you tell me anything that I've done wrong? I haven't done anything wrong. The normal answer to this would be found in Jeremiah 7.29 and in Jeremiah 12.7 where it talks about if his people would fail to keep their covenant terms of following, the God, of following God, if they failed to keep those terms, this is what would happen to them. Jeremiah 7.29, the Lord says this, he would reject and abandon his people. Now, we know that's the case today. Many times, there's a time when the Jewish people are going to come back to the Lord and it's going to be the fulfillment of the ages. And you're going to see the end times coming when all the Jewish people, or many of them, come back to their Messiah. At this point, they're not there yet. But here, at this time, God says in Jeremiah 7.29, For the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under His wrath. Because the Jewish people broke God's laws and turned away from God, they were also, then God turned His back on them. And he caused nations to come in and invade them. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. He rose up. You know what's interesting? Babylonians could go like this. We're the best empire in the world. (laughs) Puny Jews. But the whole point when you read it is that God just rose up the Babylonians to teach the Jews a lesson. Their whole empire and wealth and magnitude was just to spank Israel. Think about how humbling that is to be a Babylonian at that time. They thought they were all the, the bomb. You know, it's an old term, sorry. I'm old. They thought they were all great. You know, they thought they were pretty cool. You know, and, and God's just saying, wait a minute. I'm just raising you up just to bring Israel down. Why? To, so they would turn their backs on sin and come back to me again. He rose them up for that purpose. And that's what happened. Jeremiah was raised up and other people to where the Jewish people came back to the Lord. Then he restored them again. That's the whole cycle of the Old Testament. It's a continual cycle that way. And also in Jeremiah 12, 7, it says this, I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, and therefore I hate her. So God had to reject Jesus because he'd become sin. I believe that God's mission was to forsake his son. Doesn't that sound terrible? How many of you as a father would have a boy just to reject him? We would never do that. We have a boy or a son or a daughter because we want to love them. When they come home, every little noise they make is beautiful. You know, and if you're single right now, you know how obnoxious it can be for parents. Because you watch these parents and like everything is about the baby. You know? And if you're single, you're like, like, get over the baby. okay? <laughs> but if you're a parent, you can't get over that baby. It's like everything to you. you know? Look at, oh, he moved. He's going to tell you like a little, little synopsis. He moved his finger today. Or he started walking today. He bruised his head today. Oh, isn't it cute? You know, all these things that happens. You know, it's so fun. God, I believe, He loved His Son very much. But He had Him come into this world to forsake Him. And you want to know why? For you and for me. His love was so great for us that He would forsake even His own Son for you and for me. And He loved us that much. No one in here should suffer from inferiority complex. No one should suffer in here from being alone or abandoned 
if you're a believer in Jesus. Because He gave His very Son for you. He loves you that much. Romans 8, verse 3 says, Jesus became a sin offering for you. He actually became sin, it says. He became sin. Everything about Him was sin. On that moment on the cross, when God looked at His Son, all He saw was sin. And He had to turn His back on His Son. He had to abandon His Son. And imagine how that tore up God, the Father, and how it tore up the Son, that He would cry out in a loud voice. So if you're feeling lonely today, Jesus identifies with you. If you're feeling alone today, Jesus identifies with you. And He said, I'm going to be lonely from the Father for you. The beautiful thing is He did not stand that cross alone from the Father, did He? He died, and instead when He died, He cried out, It is finished. The alienation and the separation from God and the Father was completely washed away. He accomplished the task. He had finished it. And when He rose from the dead victorious, now He's in heaven, prepared it for us who are in Christ Jesus today. It's a joyful time today. It's a joyful time. Jesus became that sin for us. Why did He do it? Why did He do it? Because He wants every single one of you and your neighbors and your enemies and even the Adolf Hitlers of the world to come into heaven. He wants every person who's filled with anger and rage, someone who's worshipping a tree and worshipping their relatives that have died, He wants all of them to repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. He did it for them. He loves them so much that He did that. When I've counseled people who are struggling with sin, you know what i found? That their number one issue with sin is? It's a relationship issue. Men that are hooked on pornography, over and over again, it's found that the reason they're hooked on it is because there's something missing in a relationship in their life. They don't feel connected to people. And so they're getting some kind of a fix from a lie because it feels good in their heart. But what they're really missing is love from other people. We've become so disconnected as a society in America. We have our cell phones, and I, me and I and my wife will laugh, and we do the same thing, so I can't laugh at them. But you'll be in a car together, and both people will be talking on the cell phone to somebody else. I mean, it used to be you're in the horse and buggy and you talked for like five hours to each other. You know, you knew each other well. You could be in a car and never speak one word to the person you're sitting next to and walk away. We feel alienated today. We feel alone today. And so because of that, the struggle, we sometimes struggle with sin. Because what we're really struggling with is a relationship with the Father and the closeness we have with Him. And that's also projected with how we're close with the believers and how connected we are. Um, many times I hear people say, I feel lonely, so that's why I drink. There's 600 Alcoholics Anonymous groups in New Hampshire. They have a million and a half people in New Hampshire. But 600 Alcohol Anonymous groups there. AA groups there. I don't, I don't know if I'm loved, so I give in to temptation. I don't know if I'm accepted, so I give in to my peers at school. I think, the, I think in John 17 is the answer to this relational breakdown. This is so beautiful a passage, I encourage you to turn to it. John 17, and we're going to read it verse 20. Jesus is praying here to the Father. And He's crying out in a loud voice again. Or not loud voice, but out loud. He's, he's, he's praying in front of His disciples. He didn't have to do it out loud, but He, he chose to do that because He wanted all of us to hear this prayer. In John 17, in verse 20. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in Me through their message. That all of them may be one, just as the Father just as, just as the Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Listen to this. May they also be in us. <clears throat> may they also be in us. So that the world 
They believe that you sent me. The problem we have with sin is directly related to how close we feel to the Father in heaven. If you feel disconnected from the Father in heaven, you'll be much more have a greater propensity to sin. The closer you feel to the Lord, you're not going to want to mess with it. Why would you? That is where our closeness needs to be found, is with the Father. And he says in here, he wants us to be as close as Jesus and the Father are. He wants us to be that close to, the, to God. All the time. And Jesus' death and resurrection brings us to that oneness with God. And that is unimaginable. Isn't that beautiful? I, I get blown away when I think about that. That we can be that close in the Trinity that we can be part of it. We can be one with them. Even right now, he says, I want them to be with us so the world may believe that you sent us. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he, I'm not related to him, just in case you might think that. Brian Edwards, some of you know Jonathan Edwards. He was a great revival preacher at the turn of the century. And he caused the first, his preaching really was one of the impetuses for the first great awakening in America. Thousands of people got saved because of the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and how it influenced people. I'm really Norwegian. I'm not English. And uh, my parents were embarrassed of the name Refheim uh, when they came over to America. And so they changed it to Edwards at Ellis Island. So I'm an immigrant just like all of you. And they changed uh, my name to Edwards. So I have no British blood in me whatsoever. But Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that was so powerful. It was called this, The Preciousness of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It. The Preciousness of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It. He quoted from Ephesians 5.16 where he says, Redeem the time because the days are evil. And I want to just read to you just the first paragraph of this sermon and then I would like to close. It says here, Christians should not only study to improve the opportunities they enjoy for their own advantage as those who would make a good bargain but also labor to reclaim others from their evil recourses. That so God might defer His anger and time might be redeemed from that terrible destruction which would come, which would put an end to divine patience. Now let me just say this one more time. Christians should not only study to improve their own opportunities and to enjoy their own advantage. That's good. You're not saying that's bad. It's good as Christians to work hard and to improve ourselves. But he says we should also reclaim others from their evil courses. What he's saying there is if you're a Christian and you're making good on this life that you have, how is that affecting others around you who have obviously chosen evil courses in life? We're called to affect their lives as well. And to share the gospel with them through love and then sometimes use words. My problem is I use too many words and I make mistakes and my foot goes in my mouth all the time because I'm always talking. But the best thing to do is to love somebody and to give somebody a gift. And I want to close with this one thing I shared with the youth and so I figured you all could get the same illustration that they got. And if you youth know it, don't tell your dad and mom right now unless I'm telling you. Just let them hear it. But when I was, when I was in New Hampshire, it was completely snowing outside. And uh, the snow in New Hampshire gets up to you know, three or four feet up in the air, you know, you get a foot of snow and it just keeps adding. You get these huge drifts that are everywhere. It's quite beautiful. Being Crosby, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas and all that stuff. It's true. It's very white up there. It's very beautiful. Um, and so I was in my apartment. We lived in the, the church rectory for the Episcopal Church, the second floor. And across the street was another uh, huge New England house that had been turned into apartment building. 
And uh, we knew there was a, a family over there with two girls that were five years old. My girls at the time were, I think, seven and five. And one of my daughters, Brielle, she's, uh, she's a beautiful artistic girl. She sometimes is in another plane. We just wonder where she's at sometimes. She's creating things in her mind or something. I don't know. She's very creative and artsy. And uh, she, we're reading about this book called um, uh, Jesus Freaks. Or, it's either Jesus Freaks or um, Extreme Devotion by Voice of the Martyrs. It talks about Christians who've been persecuted around the world. And in here, it shared a story about somebody who had helped somebody. Uh, actually, a communist soldier. The communist soldier had take, taken the family... Uh, and, and removed the parents from the kids, and the kids are left by themselves. The communist soldiers tortured their parents. And this one little boy, or girl, I can't forget, I forget which one it was, thought to bring a rose to that soldier who had tortured his mom and tortured his dad. He said, I'd like to give you a rose. And the soldiers looked at the child and said, Get out of here. He said, No, I want to give you this rose. He walked up and gave the rose to this soldier, this, this communist soldier. And that communist soldier was touched by that love of that little boy. That after that boy left, he got down on his knees and gave his life to Jesus. He joined that boy's parents in the prison cell. And he was tortured for Christ. Because of a rose. And the question was asked, what could you give to somebody else to open them up to the gospel? And Brielle said, and we just gave him this brand new cash register. It was plastic and purple and psychedelic purple. It was really cool. And she said, I could give it my cash register. And I said, well, who would you give it to? How about the girl across the street? And we said, all right, let's do it. And, and Alicia, my oldest daughter, said, I could give my $7 that I got for my gift. You know, she was seven, so she got $7 for her birthday. I could give my $7 to that girl. I'll put it in the cash register so she won't see it. I said, that's a good idea. And so we closed it up. And we walked over there hand in hand. I'm carrying the cash register and they're walking with me across the street in the snow. Knock on the door. And they open the door. They don't even know us. They've played with our kids a couple times, but it doesn't know I'm a stranger. And I said, hi, we'd like to give you this cash register. And, and the, the mom was floored. She goes, why? She goes, we just want to tell you that Jesus loves you. And she let us come in. I couldn't believe it. We, she let us come in and we sat down and the mom prayed to receive Christ right there. And those two kids started coming to our new church that met in a gym just similar to this because my daughter thought to give a cash register to a neighbor. That's what this passage is talking about, I think. Jesus was alienated from the Father so that we would be saved, so that we would bring other people who are alienated from God back to Him, who, because of their sin, they've been separated. And Jesus said this, and this is the amplified version of Luke 12, verse 8. It says, whoever declares openly, speaking out freely and confesses that he is my worshiper and acknowledges me before men. Luke 12, 8 says this, the son of man also will declare and confess and acknowledge him before the angels of God. The greatest fear in America today, one of them, is public speaking. I know, I get, I get butterflies in my stomach every time I do it. And speaking about Jesus would probably be the number one fear to somebody you don't know. But Jesus said here, whoever openly declares me, I will openly declare him before the angels in heaven. One day, when you come before God in heaven, the angels will declare your name. Robert, Jerry, Edo, you declared my name before your Buddhist and before your Muslim and before your secular friends. 
Well done. I declare your name in front of all the angels. How beautiful that will be. And that's the day that I'm looking forward to. And that's why it's scary sometimes to step out and do that. But as we do it, God's Spirit gives you the strength to do it. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are so holy and so filled with love for us that you would be willing to come to to earth to suffer at the hands of sinful men, to be ridiculed, to be shamed, to be tortured for us, Lord, to redeem us and to bring us to be with you forever in heaven. Lord Jesus, I pray for myself and for each one here that you would give us a measure of boldness that we don't normally have to be able to just boldly proclaim you and the love that you have for others. Please give us opportunities, Lord, and to make the most of the opportunities because the days we have here, it says, are evil. They're filled with the time of judgment that's coming. So, Lord, help us to make the most of them. And I thank you for this church, Lord, that you brought here as a beacon of light in a very dark area of the country. I pray that you'd strengthen each person here, Lord. You'd give them energy that they don't even know where it's coming from, but they would just know that all of a sudden they have a strength in them, a boldness in them. I pray you'd make this church so close as a family, Lord, that nothing would be able to separate. And that you'd use them to reach many people in this area for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.